Welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. If you follow this show, you know I don't always follow the same format every week. I'm just excited to share interesting stories about the great sport of cycling. That's what this week's episode is. It's just a great story about a man and his bike making their way through the Alaskan wilderness in winter. In 2019, I jumped on a plane and I made my way to Fairbanks, Alaska to meet my friend Steve Cannon. By the way, if you ever get the chance to drive from Anchorage to Fairbanks, do it. So, Steve was preparing to line up for the 1,000-mile fat bike race on the Iditarod Trail, and I was there to film it. A couple of films came out of that experience, and I want you to watch them. The first, A Thousand Miles to Nome, is a couple of hours long and is about several people's journey across Alaska. Not just Steve, but also Peter Inman, uh, Grant Muir, Bayot Jaegerliner, I think I said that right, it's just Bayot. Uh, he's out there now, right now. Uh, John Logar and Jeff Rock was also in this edition. He did the 350-mile race, and he took a ton of footage. So I had to create another film called Down the Kuskokwim, which includes not just Rock, but also Jay Peterbury, Rebecca Rush, and Rob Henderson. I've put them all on YouTube this month, so you can watch them for free. Anyway... After returning back to Iowa from Nome, I sat down with Steve to record his experiences. Mostly, I just needed narration to help weave the film together, but I certainly couldn't use all of the audio. We talked for more than two hours. So I did use a fair bit of it, but I did not use it all, for sure. And what am I going to do? His experiences on the Iditarod Trail just sat, getting dusty on an old hard drive not doing anyone any good at all. They were destined just to live out their life on that hard drive until I die and all my computer crap gets thrown in a box for our kids to wonder what to do with so they stick it in a dark corner of their basement until the sewer backs up and then they're finally forced to throw it all out. Well, this story is just too darn good for that. And I started a podcast. So... I've dusted it off, and I tried to weave it together so that it makes sense. This isn't a conversation. It's really just Steve telling us about his experiences on the Iditarod Trail. By the way, when you hear him talking about Dave, that'd be me. Anyway, I'm gonna leave it at that. I hope you tune in next week for a conversation with Heather Poskovich, who is preparing to line up for the Race Across America this summer. 3,000 miles in June. But for now, just go grab another cup of Chain and Spoke coffee and get ready to join Steve on a wild ride through the heart of the Alaskan wilderness on the Iditarod Trail. has become my favorite question because I've had to turn it into my favorite question because for the first couple weeks after the race it tormented me because there's no 
way to answer. So, Steve, how was your race? <laughs> so, most of the people that ask me have kids. And so, it's been fun because I say, how old's your kid? We'll play this game. How old's your kid, Dave? Your oldest. Oldest is 24. How's it been raising him? Awesome. Right. <laughs> Tell me the high point. And the low point. The race for me was really, McGrath was just a shakedown. And it's amazing to say that after just one year. But it wasn't just one year for me because I had another 60 to 75 days in Alaska under my belt. So many of the old timers, when I say old timers, people that had done the race more than once, more than twice, they would typically say, it's probably a good idea to do three or four trips to McGrath before you take on Nome. And that makes perfect sense to me having been there because if all you do is just go do the race, then that's your only time in Alaska. I essentially had 20 trips to McGrath if you just took total days in Alaska under my belt. All of that being said, I hung on by a thread to get to Nome. But so the race to McGrath, the, the trail to McGrath is identical every year. So there wasn't going to be any left turns or right turns or villages I hadn't been on the year prior. So there were certain landmarks, meaning getting to Rainy Pass. That's 150 miles. But there were places I was looking forward to. The starting line temperatures were perfect in bluebird sky. The forecast was for maybe five or 10 degrees below by the end of the evening. But you have everything you need on your bike. And you better show up there not leaving any of it behind. Now, there are, there's a couple people there that are really racing and they're looking to get to Rainy Pass in a day and a half. I mean, just hauling two days. And so they take some risks. They don't, they're looking at the forecast and they're thinking, I might be able to get to McGrath in three days, two days crazy. But for the rest of us, the forecast is just a number. It's just you plan for the worst and you just deal. And hopefully all of it with a smile on. But the trail is not ideal to Yetna, which is, I don't know, 60, 65 miles uh, down the trail. There's a lot of multi-use trail in there, snowmobiles coming through, all of those kind of things. Uh, so it gets, there's sections even right off the start where you're pushing your bike, not for very long. So if, you're, if you haven't done your homework or you're not prepared, that can freak you out. Didn't bother me I'd, because I'd been there. I knew those sections were coming, so it was just whistle while you work. You got to this section, you're like, ah, this is gonna be soft. 
and you take you let the air out of your tires surprisingly you would see a lot of people falling and just or losing their balance and just getting back on and going eight feet and losing their balance it, it, it it's quite extraordinary to see how even early on people mentally are fighting with acceptance you're falling down you let air out of your tires if you're still falling down you let more air out of your tires and that's something you have to get really good at accepting because it's it's going to happen a lot and if you don't then you just add this mental aggravation because you just keep falling somehow up here you convince yourself that it's more of a hassle to let the air out of your tires and be able to pedal for the next three hours and then have to pump it back up, which takes a minute, versus struggling for the next three hours with tires that are pumped too full. So depending on who you ask, the road to the trail to Yetna Roadhouse was horrible. I, I didn't find it that way. It was exactly as it was supposed to be other than it dropped to minus 27. Which, again, if you do your homework, you know that if it says it's minus 10, then when you drop onto the Yentner River, that's minus 20. Because it's always 10 degrees colder on the river, maybe more than it is just eight feet, literally eight feet higher on that riverbank. So if you fought your bike and didn't let the air out of your tires and were in that wrestling match and you were thinking that the 67 miles might take you 10 hours and now it's 20 hours and now it's 27 below instead of 10 below and you're tired and you're still 15 miles away and you're freezing on the Yentna River on the way to the roadhouse and you're not comfortable using your bivy so you push on further than you want, then you're one of the 12 out of 79 racers that called it quits on the first freaking night. Yentna Roadhouse is this awesome place in so many ways. One, it's awesome because you're just so happy to see it because it's one of the longest sections if you do it straight through. And not everybody did. There were plenty of people that knew themselves, knew their systems, got 10, 15 miles from Yentna. It's late. They're tired. They're cold. They just went up the riverbank, set up their bivvies, slept good, made food, had a wonderful night on the river, and went to Yentna the next day in the morning, had some food there, and merrily on their way. I was fortunate to make it there that night. I was dry as a bone. I had taken care of my ventilation. All was good. But the service in the place, the volunteers are off the chain. You want some soup? You want this? You want that? What can we do? And you can get a room there, which I do. There's, we have this when we tour in the summer, ragbri and different things like that. We have this saying between us when we're fortunate enough to find a place that's going to be a soft place to sleep, we take it. And we always jokingly go, the shitty sleeps will take care of themselves. You don't have to invite them. So when you've got a soft place to land yet in a roadhouse when I get three or four hours of really good sleep in a cot and be on your way the next morning. And so that's what I did. Same thing I did last year. 
and you get to chat with some people. It's a pretty close-knit group, so you know some, if not most of them, especially in the 1,000. Uh, so Peter was there and some different guys that were actually not going to sleep and head on down the trail. But it was great. Ate a bunch, got some sleep, got up at 6 or 7 in the morning, had some clam chowder or one of the soups they were serving. And again, they're just, some of those volunteers are up all night. They're fantastic. Feels like home. And uh, next morning, 25 below, perfect blue sky. The trails rock hard. You're heading down the trail. And I uh, came up on this uh, fella named, that I later find out his name's Parker. We started sharing the trail together. We were going about the same pace. 20-something years old, it just blows my mind when I think about the life this kid's got ahead of him. He's doing 350 miles to McGrath, and he's 20-some years old. I'm 52. What's his photo album going to look like in 30 years? And he's got the heart of a lion, so it's going to just be... It's already... We headed down the trail, and I started to get a geography lesson, and he's like, there's Denali. Really? I mean, it's just perfect. It's blue sky. The trail's hard as a rock. We're going seven, eight miles an hour. You know, maybe it's 15 below, but you've got the gear. It's, it's perfect conditions. He's like, yeah, I climbed that. What? What? And, uh, and so we hit it off, and... The entire way to McGrath, I mean, you go through Finger Lake, the first checkpoint for your first drop. The race directors had got us a, uh, an actual cabin that our drop boxes were in versus a wall tent. That was super cool. We got there the next, uh, that day, because we went through, uh, we went through Squinton and met you and went on our merry way and got there and we were, uh, we were heading on. So the trail all the way to McGrath, really, there were, there were just so many times where I had the thought, if you were organizing a fat bike tour, people paying you, this would be the trail, and this would be the weather, and this would be the sky. There were times it just couldn't be any better. And it was such a joy because that was so not the case the year before. It was cloudy, it was warm, there were storms, ground blizzards. There were just some things that just didn't exist. It was just a beautiful high pressure, cold, great trail, trail frozen solid. So if a snow machine came through or even moose on the trail, it just didn't have a whole lot of effect. But you know, with all of that being said, Rainy Pass does lay in wait, and you're going to have to go over that. And that, that pass is, is no joke. So to Rainy Pass Lodge was wonderful. You stay in the hunter's cabin that the earth is slowly eating. One of the bunks actually collapsed and almost killed Parker, <laughs> literally. It stopped like this far from his head. And he just got up. He's like, I, I can't stay here. And he left it. 
four in the morning. I, I didn't I didn't see him for another day because he he was so spooked he had to get out of there. There are two places that stick out in my mind. One of them seems intentional, and that's the happy steps, which are after the first checkpoint and before Rainy Pass Lodge. That's just intentionally mean-spirited because there's no place more inappropriately named than the happy steps. It's a wall. It's so steep, steep enough I got there by myself and tried to start up the section they call the happy steps and made it three, four steps. And, and keep in mind, I've got studded boots on. And it became obvious that I wasn't going to be able to push my bike up the happy steps. And I, I don't know if there's anybody within a couple hours of me. So I have to figure it out. And I thought of everything from taking a piece of cordage that I had that was 15 feet long, climbing up on my hands and knees, and then pulling my bike up. But I didn't really think that would work. Pedals would get stuck and just didn't seem. So eventually, I had to undress the bike. I had to take everything off of the bike. And it was about, if I rem to my recollection, it was maybe 12 to 15 feet. So I take my sleeping bag roll and I heave it as far as I can and it makes it about three quarters of the way up and it rolls all the way back down. Three or four times before it actually sticks. Then I take the bike and eventually had to get off of the trail into the softer stuff so that your feet would sink enough that you could make a little bit of progress. Brutal. And at the same time, you're laughing because this is it. This is the adventure. This is, this is what you signed on for, was to be in these kind of situations and have to figure it out. But getting halfway up that seven feet of the 15 with your bike and losing your footing and you and your bike sliding back down in a pile that that loses its that loses its uh its its funniness really quick and then in a perfect in a perfect jokes on you mother nature alaska looking down by the time i got to the top it took me 42 minutes to go 15 feet. I looked at my watch and got my bike all the way loaded back up. Not five seconds had that bike been completely loaded and I could hear voices and two bikers came around the corner and I watched them work together and go up that thing in less than a minute, <laughs> helping each other. And it was just, you couldn't help but just shake your head. So. The happy steps were, uh, I would say they were the challenge, really, before Rainy Pass. And then Rainy Pass is just iconic. 
It can be absolutely brutal as it was last year. Ground blizzard, 30 below, winds, you can't bike, you can't get on your bike, you just fall over, barely able to, just as inhospitable as you could possibly imagine. To this year, bluebird sky, trail, mostly great, except for when Kyle came by on his snowmobile. I couldn't help myself, Kyle. I had to get that in there. And the trail got soft and we had to walk for a while. But it was, it was great. Last year, you know, there's this sign up on top of a rainy pass and it's iconic and everybody wants their picture because it's the place on the 350 and actually onto the 1000 as well. You say rainy pass, everybody that knows anything about that trail knows where you're talking about. It's spectacular. And uh, it became one of those life moments, not a mile or two in this giant bowl, bluebird sky, Dave and his pilot come flying by, which was cool enough because I just got to see Dave and I knew he could see me and it was in this perfect place so I knew the footage would be amazing and they're flying away and they're gonna head out the canyon and everything is amplified. It's the world's greatest amphitheater. Everything is amplified times 100 and I'm just so excited because I got to see Dave and the bush plane and I'm watching them head out the pass and it just so loud and the guy just lays the plane on its side and it's like you're suddenly in a World War II movie and here comes the fighter with his machine guns and I mean he is taking this thing to the deck and he is coming right at me. And when I say the deck, I mean, I think on a good day, if I could have stepped off my bike with a rock, I could have hit the plane. It was that close. It was close enough that I could see Dave leaning out the window, smiling. Yeah, he's right over the ledge there. And it's, it's one of the great moments of my, of my life. I, I, by the time they covered that ground 10, 15, 20 seconds, I was bawling inside my goggles just out of the joy and the fact that we were sharing this memory that we would carry the rest of our lives and it was the perfect day the perfect shot amazing and Kyle and his race photographer were just 200 more yards up the trail and two days later when we met again the race photographer was still on cloud nine. Like, can you freaking believe that just happened in that place with this guy and that shot and that? And we were all that way. I met Dave, well, that was day two, three, I don't know, two, three days later. And it was the first thing we talked about as soon as, like, can you freaking believe that rainy pass thing? Great to see you, brother. <laughs> Great to see you. What do you figure? We're about 10% done. So it was, it was magical all the way into Rhone. Woke up the next morning at 1 in the morning in the wall tent after three or four hours sleep, just so refreshed. And Tab Ballantyne, a guy I met in that same place last year, he and I boogied out together 
almost broke through the ice, scared as I've ever been in my life. You could hear it cracking underneath you at one in the morning. I, but we got to Nikolai and then, you know, then it's 50 miles in McGrath and, and the whole time you're in the moment, but there's a part of you that's already thinking about Nome. These aren't my words. They're everybody's words that have ever gone to Nome. The race, the adventure starts when you leave McGrath. And you will never understand that until you're in the race and you leave McGrath. I wouldn't even begin to try to explain the full gamut of emotions leaving McGrath. You're it's the true definition of an adventure. You're heading off into the unknown. Even if you've done the southern route before, you're still heading off into the unknown. Not as much as the first time you would do it, obviously, but 650 miles of Alaska wilderness, even on the same trail, it's an impossibility that it will be the same each year. I didn't make it far out of McGrath because I went the wrong way. Another great lesson, just in thinking you know where you're going, but not really double checking and triple checking, which completely on me. And so across the river, I went and figured out really quickly that I wasn't supposed to go across the river and had to double back, which provided some levity. And, but at the same time, I could feel the pull of McGrath when I came back across the river to just go back into McGrath where everything was known and everything was safe. And so there was a real tractor beam to get out of McGrath. And for me, I had to just say, Takatna is my finish line. I have to get to, to Katna because then McGrath is in my rear view. And that, that, really, that really is where then it all began. And to Katna is, I, I can't remember, it wasn't very far, 18 miles or something like that. But getting there, leaving McGrath in the middle of the afternoon, you know the trail's gonna run out at some point ahead of you. There was no rush to get to Ophir and beyond. But leaving McGrath is, what? The first day of kindergarten? You leave your house, you leave your mom, you're headed into this completely unknown world. You're excited, you're terrified, you probably laugh, you probably cry. The people you're leaving behind, they laugh, they cry. That all happened for me leaving McGrath. Hugs with Parker, hugs with Dave, tears. How do you feel? I'm scared, I'm excited, can't wait to go. 
I don't really want to go. Just <laughs> the whole thing. But man, you leave McGrath and now it's you and 16 others that are going to be spread over 650 miles. So unless you're intentionally hooking up with somebody, it's you and the trail now. There were, there were some great... There were some great high points getting out of McGrath. For whatever reason, spending the night in Takatna, I was the great adventurer. Somehow leaving McGrath, only being, I know it was only 18 miles, but finding a public shelter in Takatna, there was just this sense of wonder and amazement. I. I'd done it. I was on the thousand miles to Nome. And that was euphoric. That was, okay, every step I take, every pedal stroke I make is a new experience for me for however long it takes to get to Nome. And that's that's it. That's the wanderlust. That's, that's why you go to have that complete feeling of uncertainty. And so Takatna was a really special place because of that feeling. And then <laughs> the trail was great to offer, and it wasn't necessarily supposed to be. And I was seeing people that were ahead of me. I could tell they'd been post-holing, and I was so full of myself. I got it. I figured it out. I waited long enough. The trail's hard. These guys went too soon. They post-hold. I didn't. I'm so smart. I'm probably going to have a great trail all the way to Nome. <laughs> I mean, I had those thoughts, and it's so funny now. Just, And maybe everybody that's done the Iditarod Trail their first time have had these greenhorn moments where they look back and are able to just laugh at the ridiculousness and the greenness of some of their thoughts. And I had all of that. So it was just a cruise into Ophir and there wasn't supposed to be anything in Ophir. Uh, but the, the sled dog race was starting to catch us. And so they were setting up in Ophir and the, where there was supposed to be really not much of anything, there were three or four guys and a couple women and they were setting up all the bags and they're like, Come on in. We got hot stew. We got hot coffee. And, you know, in the pre-race stuff and all of that, like, and the notes I'd taken from other racers, don't expect anything in Ofer. Won't be anything in Ofer. And it was a freaking Shangri-La. I had moose chili and loaded up with some candy bars and coffee. And the trail was great. And the sun's still shining. And I'm leaving Ofer. And... The trail's still great. And I guess at some point Mother Nature had heard enough or the Iditarod trail gods had heard enough and then the trail ran out. And uh, the sun ran out. And Alaska decided to become Alaska. Man. Uh, there was a shelter cabin 15, 20 miles, Don's cabin I think after Ofer, and it was starting to become more walking than riding. 
and you know from there it's another 27 miles to Iditarod. But I got two miles past that cabin and realized I'd made a big mistake not staying at that cabin and had to turn around into a headwind and a developing storm. And I was low on calories. Oh my God, it seemed like it took forever to get back to that cabin. But I went back to the cabin and I thought, okay, now I wait. I wait for the trail breakers. When they come through, they'll make the trail and I'll bike all the way to Iditarod. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. The weather got warm, the trail became totally unreliable and um, it basically turned into a 41 mile walk to Iditarod. There was some riding after the trail breakers came through but not long after the trail started to set up, a snow machine, a few snow machines came through and one moment you were certain the 27 miles was gonna take six or seven hours and the next moment it became two or three times that. So how do you deal with that? How do you reconcile that? And for the next couple, almost the next two weeks, that became the reality. Good trail, bad trail, good weather, bad weather. I said good trail. There really wasn't much good trail for a long time, especially until I did a ride. It broke sleds. It may have broke a bone or two, knocked dogs out of the race, knocked mushers out of the race, exposed tussock fields 14, 15, 20 miles long. Anybody you ask will tell you, you, you could not create a more nasty piece of earth to go over. After I did a rod, you get some, you're on land. I wouldn't go so far, so far as to say you get great trail, but we, we were able to ride. But you know the Yukon River is coming. And you know after the Yukon River, you've got 85 miles to Caltag. So you've got this 205 mile section where there's really not much support. Yukon River is notoriously gnarly. And it wasn't lost on me that the damn thing had almost killed me 14 years earlier on a kayak race. So, but at the same time, you're excited to get to it because you know if you get to Unicolid, that's 205 miles plus a little bit between Iditarod and Anvik and leading up to that. But there's a part of you that thinks, I get to Unicleat, I'm home free. You know it's not true, but you tell yourself that because it gives you the momentum, it gives you the carrot to really put everything you've got into getting through that section. And the Yukon River did not disappoint. Between storms that would come and storms that would go, little islands where the snow would drift up against it and you'd go from being able to walk your bike two miles an hour to being in snow up to your knees, maybe higher, 
watching a dog mushing team pull away from you in the darkness and feeling more alone than you ever have in your entire life. And then at other times just being in wonder that you were the one in this dance. And reminding yourself that it's one of, if not the hardest race in the world for a damn good reason. So quit your whining and get to work. But that river sucks. I don't hate much, but I hate the Yukon River. And then it's 85 miles to Caltag once you get off that river. Or I'm sorry, it's, it's uh, Caltag is when you get off the river. And that's just about as shelled as I've ever been. I think I pulled into Caltag at 1, 1.30 in the morning. Pulling into Caltag, 1 o'clock in the morning, the whole village is asleep. Going down the main drag, I was a ghost, seemingly looking at a ghost. A, a guy that I get to be good friends with, Nick, was actually doing the trail just for shits and giggles. He was not part of the race. He was just there to tour it. Incredibly strong, really knew what he was doing out there. He'd stayed up just to greet me. I wasn't even sure it was a real person. I was so zeroed out. But got to the school, got resupplied, got some sleep, headed for Uniclete, big stretch, 85 miles. 85 miles on a fat bike on cement's a long way. In Alaska on the trail, it's a really long way. But there was such a relief getting off the Yukon River that that stretch really didn't seem nearly as daunting. It was a hell of a challenge, but little did I know I'd get myself in the most trouble of the entire race, just about, in the safety of one of the more populated, safest villages on the whole trail. I basically ate myself to death in Unicolite. Rookie mistake, great story though. Getting there that night, Dave was a great sport. He let me hug him 47 times over the course of three blocks. I hadn't seen him for three or 400 miles. So happy to see him. We rocked into, walked into Peace on Earth Pizza. <laughs> they were still open, which seemed incredible. Come to find out, it's just the way they operate during the Iditarod for the mushers and everything. They just stay open. They just keep serving food. Walked in, the guy says, what do you have? And it's on the house. And even as wiped out as I was, I found that to be a bit out of the ordinary. He says, John, Forge? John Forgy? I said, John Figgy? Yeah, that's it. That's it. He called about an hour ago. Said a buddy of mine going to be showing up there sometime soon, Steve Cannon. As long as he's in the village, he doesn't pay for a thing. This guy's a ragbride buddy that lives in Florida. I haven't seen him for three years. And he's watching my blue dot and has the wherewithal to call the pizza place in Unicolite so that his friend doesn't pay for a thing while he's in this village. Who does that? And so I took full advantage of it and ate so much that uh, over the course of the next 24 hours that I made myself terribly sick 
between the grease and the volume. <laughs> my stomach, my body was in no way to handle it. And uh, yeah, I did Rod Trail's just not a good place to have to pull your pants down every 15 minutes. So I took some Imodium and it boomeranged me. It dried me up times 10 and I became just incredibly bloated. Nothing would move and I just laid in a ball for what seemed like forever. I think a half a day through the night. Never, oh, so painful. Wondered if I was gonna even be able to continue the race. I had plenty of time in the bank, but I remember looking in the, looking in the mirror that morning, my stomach so distended that my belly button was actually horizontal. It was stretched like you just took it, you just pulled it from each side. It was just a horizontal line going across my stomach. Thank God for coffee. Doctor friend told me to start moving and start drinking coffee and I, I could barely move, I could barely, I was just walking around the inside of the apartment there in the village that we were able to stay at. I could barely put one foot in front of the other but eventually uh, it wore off and it may have even been harder leaving there after a day and a half than it was leaving McGrath. Checkpoints are dangerous places. All the voices that you'd gotten so good at quieting down were all of a sudden awake again. You shouldn't leave, you're gonna get sick. The trail's hard enough without doing it with your, it's safe back there, you've still got extra time. Maybe you should stay another. So you have to start turning off all the stations that are playing the music that you don't wanna hear. And just, I just set a, I just set a mental note of 10 miles. I wouldn't think about Uniclete until I got 10 miles away. That was just a abstract number that I thought by then I won't be able to see Uniclete again. And the thought of turning around and going back would not make sense even to the weakest parts of my mind. And it worked. And. It was sunny. The trail was actually pretty decent, could ride. There was another rider not far up the trail ahead of me, so had that to kind of keep an eye on. Big hills, big country, big hills, and you just keep climbing, climbing, climbing. You start to get these unbelievable views of the Bering Sea to your left. You're 600, 800, I don't know. You're way up above the Bering Sea, breathtaking, no one else around you. King, queen of the world views. Put your foot down, look around, and you realize it's the Bering Sea. It's not the Mississippi River. It's not, it's the Bering Sea. You're on just this incredible adventure and all was right with the world again and you were on your way to Shack Tulik and a lot more trail lay behind you than ahead of you. You felt like the tussocks and 
the walking and the pushing and the eating yourself to almost having to quit. The, you just felt like you'd come across a lot of hurdles. But by this time, you so, so very much can't allow yourself because you've just learned to think, okay, I'll be here in this amount of time or I'll be there or I'm home free. You just, by this point, I would guess most everybody would say they started to get or already were really good at staying in the moment. And Shaq Tulik was no different. A huge windstorm came up that next day. And so if you were planning on being anywhere in a certain amount of time, that just was gone. And so, thankfully, I hadn't. I just, there was no fast or slow anymore. You either were going forward or you weren't. Neither was good, neither was bad. Six miles an hour wasn't better than eight. Twelve wasn't better than two. It was just forward. And as long as that was happening, that's all that mattered. I think Tim Hewitt said it. At least I'll give him the credit. You don't go to Nome, you let Nome come to you. From Shaq Tulik to Koyuk might be the most desolate section of the whole race. The Yukon River has its own special feel. But you see banks, occasionally there's some land features. That section from Shaktulik to Koyak, it just seems like it's just an endless expanse of white. No features. You couldn't, the flat as flat can be. And it was still unseasonably warm, so the trail, I mean, that section with a good trail, you could probably just burn it down. But by that time, you're back on sections of the trail that village-to-village -village traffic exists again, whereas the Iditarod section, it's just those villages are empty, they're deserted, there's no reason for somebody to be down there, so you don't have a lot of snow machine traffic. But where we were now, you did have that, and it was the one sound you didn't want to hear at any point because it was so warm that the trail just was so delicate that all it took is one snow machine to come through and your four miles an hour were down to a one and a half because you you couldn't put your tire pressure low enough to be able to ride it and and that that became that became the the reality to Koyak. Oh well, I mean, you gotta walk, so what? By this point I was I was good with that. That was just that was just part of the race. Walking a hunt pushing your bike fifty, a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred miles, whatever. Hearing those stories before you just think that is horrible. Maybe even unthinkable. But by the time you've been out there that long, you gotta throw your leg off the bike and start walking. It just, 
Sometimes it actually was a relief. You didn't have to fight falling and all of this. You just knew you'd go one or two miles an hour, and if it was 20 miles, you'd be there in 10 hours. I can remember a couple of times thinking, I don't even want to get back on my bike, even though I was pretty sure I could ride it, because I was afraid of the disappointment if I get my leg over the top of that bar and then I fell over. And then there was the grizzly bear. I fortunately didn't see the grizzly bear, but Peter from Germany, tough old bird, 62 years old. I swear to God, he had a 300 pound bike. <laughs> he was maybe two miles ahead of me and had a snow machine come out and circle him two or three times. And you see these snow machines, that's what they call snowmobiles in Alaska. They don't even know what a snowmobile is up there. They just call them snow machines. You see almost every snow machine out there when they come by, two out of every three people have a high-powered rifle around their chest. You can't help but notice that when you're out there on foot or on your bike and you don't have anything like that. You wonder, they live here and they have a high-powered rifle. They're not carrying that just because it looks cool. And so, in addition to that, when you're the only one out on the sea ice and a villager on a snow machine decides to come out and circle you two or three times, you can't help but think, well, if this guy just wanted to shoot me and throw me into the Bering Sea, nobody would ever freaking know it. It's just us two out here. I mean, your mind goes places when you're... And so the guy pulled up to uh, Peter and said, everything okay? And Peter's like, well, yeah, mostly. I mean, the trail kind of sucks, but yeah, I'm all right. Why? He's like, I just wondered if you've seen the grizzly bear that's a quarter mile from you. And we were both in the same boat. The trail was so crappy that if you were riding, you were just looking two foot in front of your tire. And if you were pushing your bike, you were just looking two foot in front of your tire. So I suppose that grizzly bear could have got within 50 feet of Peter and he wouldn't have known. They never remembered a grizzly bear being up so early. But a grizzly bear is only up because he's starving and it's time to eat. And so there were the sea otters or sea lions or whatever the heck was out on the ice and they certainly weren't gonna stick around, they just jump in the water. So the only other thing to eat out there was Peter or I. And thank goodness for this villager, you heard there was a, a grizzly out on the sea ice and he knew from the spot trackers that there were two bikers out there and. He came out and he said, you head west towards Koyuk and I'll take that bear as far to the east as I can. And Peter watched him chase that bear across the ice and start shooting high-powered rifle shots over his head and pushed him as far away as he could. But I don't think Peter or I forgot about that for the next two or three days when you're in the middle of those mountains by yourself and you're pushing your bike. You're wondering if that bear is coming back or if he's the only one that's up and about. But the villagers as a whole were just so welcoming. But that's really going above and beyond the call of duty. But I think, it's, I think it's the way things are done out there. It takes a village. The blacksmith is just as important as the teacher, as the mayor, because if any one of them drops the ball, the village falls apart. You rely on each other out there and you get that sense of community in the villages. It's, 
it's uh, it's pretty cool, and they're they're very welcoming. A lot of really cool stories about just showing up somewhere and getting to the checkpoint or to the school, and somebody out of the goodness of their heart has a crock pot of moose stew waiting inside the school just because. But Koyak was a very desolate, challenging stretch. And from there, man, you start to, it becomes a real challenge to not listen to the voice that says you're getting close. But leaving Koyak, you go back into the mountains, big country, lot of wolf tracks, really exposed, beautiful, up to Little McKinley, a thousand foot vertical pushing your bike the whole, not the whole way, but almost the whole way, winding steep trail all the way up above the tree line. And we had a beautiful day. No wind, skies as blue as you could ever imagine, bearing sea over your left shoulder. You might as well be the king or queen of Alaska, as far as you could see, any one direction mesmerizing but so many false summits so many times you thought you were over the last hump but eventually you're you always get to the last hump you just keep moving big downhill get to elam knock out golovin head for white mountain the stretches aren't very big then you're going 20 you're going 40 you're going 30 white mountain's the last drop it's the last drop. 60 miles, you're home. Hmm. That'd be the section where I'd almost quit. 900 some miles behind me, I almost threw in the towel. It cooled off and the trail started to get good on the way to White Mountain, on the river, 15, 20 mile an hour tailwind. Still early in the day. Got to the Trail Angel's house to get my last drop box. And I mean, I'm doing 10, 12 miles an hour. And from White Mountain to Topcock Cabin is like 20 something miles. And I fell right into the trap of figuring, well, with this tailwind, I'm at Topcock Cabin in three hours. And from there it's, I don't know, 30 miles to freaking Nome. And the lady wasn't there. At the Trail Angel's house. And so I went to the store and got a day's worth of food. Maybe two, wasn't more than that. Because I knew I was gonna be at Top Cop Cabin that night, and then the next day was 30 miles and I was home. I went so far as to get on my phone. There was reception, I think at White Mountain, telling my sister, like, get ready. I'll be at Top Cock tonight and Nome tomorrow. After 21 days still making making the mistake of thinking I knew what was in store. So I grabbed the supplies and 
headed down the river, past my Danish mushing friends. And as much as I wanted to hang out with them, I, I can remember rolling right by them on the river as they were setting up camp, arm in the air, cussing like a sailor. I'll see you bleepity bleep bleeps in Nome. I am going home. And two miles down the river, I crawled out of the riverbank to hop onto the trail to go the 20 miles. It's 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was taking a basically a 90 degree left in that, that 20, 30 mile an hour tailwind became a crosswind. And I stuck my head up over that bank and I could see the wonderfully hard packed trail just drifting shut. And that, that section, Topcock Hills, is no joke. There's many blowholes in there and going in there through the night, which is what I was going to have to do. I could tell there was no way I was going to be able to bike through that stuff, at least not for long. So I uh, backed out of the river and rolled back down to my Danish musher friends and asked them if there was any room at the inn, bivvied with them on the river. Felt like, felt like the wind was just going to pick us right up out of that river. And we were down behind a riverbank, but it howled. I can only imagine what it was like in those hills that night. I think Bayot was actually going through them at that time. He said it was the worst he'd ever seen it. He's been through there a time or two. Eventually, you're the hammer, and eventually, you're the nail. Some people probably went through that section in three hours, just like I thought I was going to. Some people probably flew up the Yukon River. Some people walk it. Sometimes they're standing. You're never going to be the guy that goes through completely unscathed. Sooner or later, you know, if we sit down all afterwards, somebody's going to say, man, it was glorious going over Rainy Pass Lodge. And another person's going to say, I got my ass kicked going over Rainy Pass Lodge. So, but the the trail uh, the trail was was blown shut, so it became a walk. So the Topcock Hills were seemingly the last big hurdle. I watched those boys and their dog teams head off into the storm, and it just became about one piece of wood with a little orange reflector on it at a time. And I didn't have a whole lot of food left either, but. I just, as you do on this trail or any real challenge in life, you create momentum. You put one foot in front of the other, put little mini goals in front of you, knowing that eventually you'll get to a point where the mind signs on and says, I'll be damned. I think we can actually do this. But to keep that quiet, you have to make the goal one piece of wood, and then another piece of wood, and then one hill, six to go, third hill, four to go, two to go. The last one's supposed to be the steepest. It's a 500-foot climb. Oh, damn. It flattened out. I know that's not 500 feet. Uh-oh. 
it's kicking back up again. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is the last climb. And on your, on your GPS, you can see that if it is the last climb, the, the Bering Sea should be coming up really close to the, to the trail. And it's just so white everywhere that it seems like this is where you should be. And it's so steep and you're pushing and you're so lost in the moment. And every once in a while you look to the right, you look to the left, you look to the, you look to the left and you're like, oh my God, look at that. That's the first time I've seen a blue sky. And then you realize it's the Bering Sea. It's not the sky, which means it is the last hill, which means you're through the top cock hills and you go another little bit and you're looking 800 feet down to the top cock cabin and I could see the Danish mushers sleds. Even then I wouldn't, I wouldn't let myself believe it because if for some reason it was something that it wasn't, it would just, it would just be heartbreaking. You would, you just sit down probably and <laughs> wait for the thaw, but it was. And uh, you got down there and big hugs between everybody. Those guys had a hard time of it. The hills were so steep, they, they'd have to get off their sleds and push and walk to help the dogs get over <clears throat> you'd hear the stories from Bayot later, and it was a hell of a storm. I think we talked to a local guy that was with search and rescue, said there were multiple search and rescue missions going on at the same time. We actually saw a guy down in the cabin who was literally minutes probably from dying who got stranded on the sea ice the night before. But we were there. All we had to do was get across the really gnarly blowhole the next day and man the wind was whipping all night and you think if that wind stays like that you can't leave you can't go across this blowhole it can blow 100 miles an hour through this blowhole there's been dog mushers that have literally locked down their team for fear that they were going to get blown clear across the sea ice and into the Bering Sea so but we woke up and it was blowing maybe 15 miles an hour from the from the northwest which was sort of a tailwind and I don't think it took 20, 30 minutes to go across that five miles of the blowhole. And then you see a bridge and you know where there's a bridge that there's a road. And you know they don't build roads on rivers. So there's nothing for you to fall through. There's probably no more grizzly bears chasing you. The wolves aren't anywhere around. <laughs> And as much as you'll let yourself, you realize you're probably home free. It's probably going to happen. You don't let yourself, I, I don't let myself believe it. I'd, eventually, I'd see Nome in the distance, and I wouldn't let myself believe it. I mean, I knew it was Nome, but I wouldn't let myself actually say, I'm there. I'm home free. You're just such a robot by that point. You're so trained in the mind 
that until I put my foot down in Nome, I wasn't in Nome. 